working through Matthew with us, uh, you'll remember that Jesus is in his last week of life before his crucifixion and resurrection. He has come to Jerusalem basically to stand off against the religious leaders. They have um, he came into town, he went into the temple, he flipped over tables, he was very prophetic in his posture, very aggressive towards the religious community there, and they have responded by sending him members of their delegation to ask him questions. They asked him three questions. Last week, they asked him a political question about paying taxes. This week, a different group is going to ask a theological question in order to discredit him as a teacher. Before we get into Matthew, though, I want to show you. Um, I want to show you a couple of videos, and the first one is a video of a house we bought. We bought a house in 2015. My wife and I did, um, and I just I just want to show it to you. So that's the house we bought in 2015. Um, my wife convinced me to buy it. Um, it was a mess. It was a rancher with a basement that had been turned into a duplex in this really terrible way. And it had flooded in the basement. And so they had torn out all the flooring and cut out all the drywall in the basement and it was just gross. And we bought this house. Why did we buy this house? We bought this house because we knew something about this house. We knew that the future of this house could be better than its present. We knew that we were going to be investing our time, our energy, and our money in a broken down house, not because we wanted to live in a broken down house, but because we could see a better house in the future. See, the view that we had of the present affected what the decisions that we made for the future. And I, I won't say that we knew exactly what our house was going to be, but we sold our house in 2019, and I will show you what it looked like then. Does that look like the same house? No. Not really. It is the same house, but it's a different house. It's a better house. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of help, but we completely transformed that house. And the whole reason that we bought the house in the first place is because we had an idea about that house in the second video. We didn't, we didn't know all the details, maybe. I didn't maybe know what colors everything was going to be and what material choices we were exactly going to make. But I had this vision, and my wife especially had this vision, that this thing could be this better thing. What you think about your future has a very significant impact on the decisions you make in the present. The Sadducees, which we're going to talk about in a minute, are going to talk, they're going to pose a question about something called the resurrection, life after this life. And believing in a life after this life changes the decisions that you make today. We, we saw that clearly at 9-11, when many of us for the first time learned about certain sects of radical Islam and, and their vision of the afterlife and how they could make decisions uh, for their, um, to propagate Islam in very violent, dangerous ways and how that would affect their future. 
in paradise, so they thought. Even in the Christian community, we have a view of the next life. I want to read you a quote from Justin Martyr from 150 AD. He says, when you hear that we look for a kingdom, you suppose without making any inquiry that we speak of a human kingdom. Whereas we speak of that which is with God, as also appears from the confession of their faith made by those who are charged with being Christians, though they know that death is the punishment awarded to him who so confesses. For if we looked for a human kingdom, we should also deny our Christ, that we might not be slain. We should strive to escape detection, that we might obtain what we expect. But since our thoughts are not fixed on the present, we are not concerned when men cut us off. Justin was saying the Christian community is not concerned about their lives today because they are waiting for a kingdom to come. They can be arrested for their faith and questioned and and admit freely that, yes, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ, knowing that death may be the consequence of that, and yet they'll do it anyway because they're looking for something in the future that is better. So let's look at the Sadducees. Verse 23 that same day, some Sadducees who, said there, who say there is no resurrection came up and, to him and questioned him. The Sadducees are a re- political, religious group in Israel. We've looked at the Pharisees a lot. We've looked at the Herodians a little bit last week. The Sadducees are a third group in Jewish politics. They were incredibly conservative theologically. They only took the first five books of the Bible to be God's Word, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything else, they said that, that's, that wasn't given from God. And because of this, they did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in the angelic world. They said that the first five books of the Bible, they don't teach those things, so we're not going to believe them. They were very similar to what we might call deists, In American history, many of our founding fathers were deists. These were men that believed that God exists, that God started the world in motion, and then he just kind of took off. Maybe he went on vacation. Maybe he's standing in the back taking notes on everybody, but he's not really engaging with the world. And this is what the Sadducees believed, that God was out there. God, God spoke to Moses, but then he took a vacation. And they believed that their job was to live life to its fullest and then be honored by your descendants. That was the only way that your life was going to go on into the future. This life is all that there is. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection. And when you hear the word resurrection, don't just think people rising from the dead. That's part of it. But when Jesus and the Sadducees are talking about the resurrection, they're talking about a whole state of being, the idea of heaven and earth coming together as one, being reunited in the kingdom of God. And the Sadducees, they don't believe this. They're a small group in Israel. There's not many Sadducees, but they're very influential. Many of the high priests are Sadducees. And because of their views, they have taken it upon themselves to get up close to the Roman occupying government. We've talked about this. The Romans came into Jerusalem, they came into Judea, and they conquered the Jewish people, and they have uh, oppressed them for many years now. But the Sadducees see, the only thing that matters is this life, and so I want my best life now So I'm going to get close to the Roman government. I'm going to get close to the Roman officials. And the Sadducees tended to be wealthy and powerful 
and their wealth and their power was kept by everything being peaceful and orderly and Roman. And so for Jesus, a a teacher to come in and, and speak of the resurrection and the kingdom, that was revolutionary language. And to the Sadducees, Jesus is dangerous because if Jesus starts a revolt, then their whole way of life, the status quo that they're maintaining goes away. So they don't want Jesus to be successful. So they send some of their number to him and they ask him this question, verse 24, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also, and the third, and so on to the seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. So the Sadducees are picking up on something called levirate marriage. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it was a law in Israel that if you were a married woman and your husband died and you didn't have any children, then it was your husband's brother's duty to marry you and raise up children for your dead husband. Many of you in this room that have brother-in-laws are like, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. But the point of Israel society was, uh, they were a tribal farming society. And so they had land that they needed to protect. They had family lines that they needed to protect. And so to be a widow without a child was a incredibly marginalized position. And the law was set up so that women wouldn't be left alone. They wouldn't be left without largely many other ways of earning a living and that the family would stick together the ancient land rights would be protected, and the genealogy of God's people would move forward. Our understanding of marriage in the West is incredibly new and novel, historically speaking. We believe generally that you marry someone that you're madly in love with. Um, That's a crazy idea to most people in most cultures throughout the world, throughout history. Marriages were much more important than two people's uh, emotions and hormones. Uh, And so we're in a real minority when we look at uh, the kinds of marriage in other cultures and go, like, that doesn't sound very romantic. Well, that wasn't really the point. The point was family stability. And so the levirate marriage ensured family stability in the case of a death in the family. And so they say, "This this is the law, right? So this is what happens. A woman marries a man, and that man dies. And so that man's brother marries her, and then he dies. And then the next brother marries her, and then he dies. All the way, they had seven brothers, and they all died. And then the question is, what is wrong with this woman that all of these men have died? No, that doesn't come up. Um, And then the woman dies, right? And then in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Because she's been married to all of them. It's important to recognize that the Sadducees aren't asking a question that they care to have answered. They're not like really concerned about how this is going to work out. They're trying to trick Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. They say that supernatural things, these are foolish on their face. Let's give a foolish example of why your whole resurrection thing doesn't make any sense. And the premise that they have 
is that there is a certain continuity between this life and the next life. The way it is now is going to be the way it is in the future. Marriage works like this now, so if there's a kingdom, if there's a resurrection, if there's a new life to be had in the future, it's going to look the exact same way, and obviously, that is foolish. Resurrection is ludicrous. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, you are mistaken. You can translate that. That's a dumb story. You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. The Sadducees get this wrong for two reasons. First, they do not know the Scripture. And I love this. Jesus says this to all these guys. All these guys that come and challenge Him are professional Bible scholars. And every single time, He's all like, you guys don't know the Bible very well. He is a 30-year-old country carpenter. How insulting is that? But it's true. They don't know the Scripture. And the other thing is, is they don't know the power of God. They don't understand the Bible, and they don't have a vision of how God could be doing something different than the box that they have put Him in. And as a quick aside, I just wonder, is that us? Are we, are we people that don't understand Scripture? I talk with people all the time, and, and it's, and this is going wrong, and this is my concern, and I don't, I don't know how to fix this, and whatever, and I say, how... Are you reading the Word? Are you spending time in the Bible? Well, no. Why not? I, I don't know. Or maybe, maybe you do read the Bible, and you read it and you go like, this is hard. I don't understand it. It's weird. Well, you know, we live in a culture where there are millions and millions and millions of resources available to help you figure out how to read the Bible. Yeah, but that takes work, and that's hard, and I just don't have time for that, and There's so many things on Netflix to watch right now. I don't know. We've become a generation that has so much access to Scripture, and increasingly, we just don't understand the Word of God. Or maybe we don't know the power of God. We're so consumed with our current circumstances that we can't envision a future which God might possibly do anything different from what's happening right now. Things are, things are rotten, things are terrible, things are broken, and I just can't see how God could do anything to fix it, anything to change it. And I get that. I feel that way sometimes. But I think Jesus has something to tell you this morning. That's a dumb story. Jesus has such a bigger view of who God is and what He can do and how He is working in the world Look at verse 30. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, first of all, he says, you guys, you don't understand how marriage works in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom we're in now. God is doing something one way over here, and he's doing something different over here. And this is a really weird verse. A lot of weird ideas have come out of this verse. And so I want to say, like, here's a few things that this verse is not saying. It's not saying that people become angels. Like, nobody, we don't get wings, like the movies say. Um, Or it doesn't say that people are like angels in every way. Um, 
great-grandma doesn't become your guardian angel when she dies. She's busy doing other things. It also doesn't say that there's no relational connection between people in the kingdom of God. I've heard this before, that, that when, when we die and we go and, to heaven and then God brings his kingdom, we won't have any memory of anything that happened down here. And that's just not taught in Scripture. Jesus is saying specifically the institution of marriage is what changes. Remember the Sadducees' question. They brought up the levirate marriage, this idea that, that a woman is widowed and she needs a new husband. She needs a new husband because she needs an heir. She needs her land rights protected. And she doesn't have any way to work. And so Jesus is saying that in, in the kingdom, procreation isn't necessary. Protecting your land rights isn't necessary. And Making provision for the marginalized isn't necessary because no one will be marginalized in the kingdom. Jesus says, Sadducees, you are painting a picture of what the future looks like that's just a carbon copy of the world we live in right now. And what Jesus is saying is that God is doing something new. God is doing something different. God is doing something better. And there might be some of you this morning, maybe you're single, and you're kind of bummed out by this verse. I remember being single and hearing that, like, the rapture was going to happen any day now. I was like, man, I really need to get married because I don't want to miss out. If that's you, I don't want to get too far into it because of all of the little ears in the room, but look up Peter Kreeft. He's a theologian. He's got some really interesting ideas about how uh, people will interact with each other in the kingdom of God. Uh, some short essays online about this verse and its implications for um, uh, intimacy. But that's not the point of this message. Jesus says something better, something different is happening in the kingdom. And look at verse 31. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead... Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus quotes a portion of Scripture that comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus is one of the five books that the Sadducees believed came from God. This is a really beautiful thing that Jesus does because Jesus could take there are, there are so many passages in the Hebrew Bible that talk about resurrection. He could go to Isaiah or Daniel or the Psalms or uh, the Proverbs or all these places that talk about resurrection. But he knows that the Sadducees don't care. They don't use those books. So he finds common ground. He says, okay, you're only going to listen to something from these five books. I'm going to use one of these five books that you take as God's word to show you where you're wrong. And I think that's so important. If you're a Christian in this room and you interact with people who are not Christians and you want to tell them about the love of God, and they're like, well, I don't believe the Bible, don't be too quick to be like, well, the Bible says that you'd say that. You know, like, they don't care. 
Find common ground with people. There are so many beautiful ways to engage with truth, not to diminish Scripture. Scripture is our ultimate authority, but if you're you're talking with somebody who's not there yet, talk about reason, talk about nature, talk about the complexity of the human genome or the vastness of space, anything that they will latch onto, find out what that is and show them that all truth is God's truth. This is what Jesus does here. He uses what they will find helpful to teach them. He quotes Exodus, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is several hundred years after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived. And so the point Jesus is making is he uses the present tense. I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. Back when Abraham was around, I was his God. No, Yahweh says, I am currently the God of Abraham. I am currently the God of Isaac, and I am currently the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Look at verse 33. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. This happens every time Jesus teaches because you think his enemies are smart. They've got him in a corner. They've trapped him. And he says something just brilliant and gets out of the trap. And there's something in Jesus that's incredibly compelling. The crowds are hearing this man, this this carpenter, this um, country small town boy in the big city, out of his element. These are the the elites of the country trying to push on him and get him to fail. And everybody's just like, wow, Jesus is so great. Jesus has this vision for the world that it would be remade and it would be the same but different and better. And in a few more days, it'll be more than a few days for us, but in a few more chapters, Jesus is going to begin to bring that about. Jesus is going to face death at the cross. He's going to be crucified by the Roman government at the request of the Jewish leadership. He's going to die. It's going to look like he's been defeated by the systems of the world. But on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to become what's called the first fruits of the resurrection. This whole new world that he's talking about, this way of life, this kingdom, starts with him. It starts with his life. And then it spreads. It spreads to his people who he says in in the Gospel of John, you must be born again. To be one of Jesus' people, you have to say, Jesus, I am yours. I want what you have for me. The way that I'm living my life in the, the sin and the selfishness and the brokenness that I wallow in is not working. And I need to be rescued from that. I need to be redeemed from that. I need your blood on the cross to pay 
for everything that I've done to dishonor God and my fellow human beings. And that's what Jesus calls being born again. Because somehow, in some way, at that point, we become new creatures, new humans. We become become part of that new kingdom. And the question for us is, do we have that vision for the kingdom of God? Do we have this idea that we are part of a remodel project for the whole world, where some things are going to be the same, but some things are going to be different, that we have a part to play in bringing that about? When we were remodeling our house, like I said, it, had been, it, was, a, it was a two-story rancher that had been converted into an upstairs-downstairs duplex. And there was this double door that had this, like, dumb wall in between the two doors that was making it. So you go in one door and you had to go downstairs, and one door and you had to stay upstairs. And it was just weird and out of place, and it was keeping the house from being whole. So I want to show you what the first thing I did when we bought the house. We tore down that wall. We opened it up. It had to be it had to come down. It was dividing the house between the upstairs and the downstairs. And I want to say that that Jesus Jesus is doing that work in our life, in our world, heaven and earth are divided by sin and death and destruction, and He is tearing that wall down and bringing them together and making it one again. I want us to be careful that we don't misunderstand our role in that. Some of us have maybe thought that our job is to, like, live in the old house and like huddle in the corner and hope that someday we're rescued. I hate this house. It's dark and dirty and moldy, and I got to get out of it. We just pray somebody would save us from this house. But on the other side, we think, I'm in this house, and it's my job to make it all brand new. And there are some in the church that would say that our job as Christians is to completely bring about the kingdom of God. I don't think that's what Scripture says is going to happen. I think the reality is, is, is the house that we're living in is broken, but we have a job to do. We have a job to tear down walls, to repaint, to drywall, to pull out old carpet and put in new flooring to make new light fixtures and new bathrooms. And someday, we're never going to get it done. Jesus is going to show up, and He's going to do the final push. He's going to get it all done for us. But until then, in the meantime, He's asked us to get started. 
the resurrection, the kingdom of God, this, this world that we are waiting for as Christians where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no sorrow, all the wrongs have been made right. That's what we have to look forward to. And that's the hope of the world. That's the solution to all of the political drama right now. That's the solution to tensions between races. That's the solution to the nuclear arms race that seems to be kicking up again for some reason. All of these things that are wrong with the world find their solution, find their hope in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, by his work on the cross, has opened the door to bring heaven and earth together to begin that push for the resurrection to become reality. And each one of us that has bowed our knee to Christ has been given that job as well. Through the gospel, by the power of his spirit, we get to be people that make decisions that move us towards the hope of the resurrection and invite other people to join in in that. My challenge to all of us is, is to be people that have a vision for that. Be people that have found themselves in a broken down house, but can see what it will be in the future. See what it can be when it is remodeled. When Jesus does his full work in all of us, in our communities, and ultimately at his return to make this world what he wants it to be. And for us to make decisions every single day that support that goal. To love people that feel unlovable. To be generous with the things that God has given us, either with our time, our possessions, our money. To stand up against injustice. To stand up for people in our communities that don't have a voice, to live lives that are markedly different than the world around us, to say no to the morals that our entertainment industry wants to give us and say, no, we don't, we don't really think that way. But most importantly, to just be a light, to be like Jesus. That when we're in, we in a conversation or a business meeting or a classroom, people just go like, what is it with you? Why are you so different? What is it about you? How do you see the world differently than I see the world? We're going to take communion we always do. And I was talking with some friends this week, and, and uh, we were talking about the, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And my friend was saying, well, I don't think that's literal. It's just a metaphor. And I said, well, I think Jesus thought it was literal. Because Jesus, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, I'm not going to drink this cup and eat this bread again with you until I eat it and drink it with you in the kingdom. He's looking forward to a time 
when we're all going to gather together and eat a really good meal. And much like the difference between the beautiful house we sold and the broken house we bought, this is not an amazing meal. This is a tiny little cup of juice, and I think it's technically bread. But it doesn't have COVID, so there you go. But it's a symbol. It's a reminder. It's, it's an expectation and a hope that the things, the way things are now are not the way they're going to be in the future. That there's a similarity between the meal that we take every week as a reminder of who Jesus is, and there's a difference because the wedding supper of the Lamb is going to be a feast. And I just encourage you as the band comes back up, as we sing the praise of Christ, to come down, take the communion, take it back to your seat, with your family, and ask the Lord, in what ways am I not seeing your vision for the future? In what ways am I not making decisions in light of the kingdom? Have I become a person who just hunkers down because everything is awful and this is all there is? Or do I live every day with the hope Jesus is remodeling this place and he's doing it through his people. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.